You are now listening to the Hack My Age podcast, the show that brings you guests for biohacking women over 50. I'm your host, Zora Benamou, a gerontologist, digital nomad, certified sports nutrition, and breathing coach. I'm the author of the Longevity Master Plan, the cookbook, Eating for Longevity, and a new upcoming energy reboot program for women over 50. Now, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, and I would really appreciate it if you could please leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others find us too. This is a really small but very critical gesture that makes a huge impact for me to support a podcast for older women, help us grow stronger, get our voice out there, and attract even more amazing guests to the show for you and for me. You can now watch all of our podcast interviews on the Hack My Age YouTube channel. Some of our guests bring slideshows, so it's really great to have. Every week there is a new video, so just search Hack My Age on YouTube.com or find the link on the Hack My Age website. We're going to take a very different perspective on anxiety during menopause today with my next guest, Tracy Dennis Tiwari. She has a PhD and is a professor of psychology and neuroscience, the director of the Emotion Regulation Lab, and co-executive director of the Center for Health Technology at Hunter College in New York City, where the mission is to connect researchers, community stakeholders, and technology innovators to bridge the healthcare gap. Now, she has a very interesting role as a founder and CSO of Arcade Therapeutics, where she translates neuroscience and cognitive therapy techniques into gamified, clinically validated digital therapeutics for mental health. And she is a busy mama. and <laughs> She's published over 100 scientific articles and delivered over 400 presentations at academic conferences and for corporate clients. You may have seen her in the media where she's been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. She's been on ABC, television networks, CBS, CNN, NPR, the Today Show, and Bloomberg Television. So she's been around, guys. Now, without further ado, let's welcome Tracy Dennis Tiwari. Welcome. Thank you, Zora. It's great to be with you. We're going to tackle this topic that comes up a lot in discussions on menopause, and that's anxiety. It's one of the 34 symptoms of menopause, but I'd like to first have you define what that means and and how anxiety differs from, say, depression, stress, and some anxiety disorders. So what's your definition? Very first thing to start with that's super, I think, critical to understand is that anxiety is an emotion. So let me repeat that. (laughs) And I repeat it because When we think anxiety and people say things like, I have anxiety, or, oh my gosh, I was born anxious, they mean an anxiety disorder. And so, you know, or anxiety that's um, debilitating. So I really want to make that distinction that anxiety is actually an emotion that we all have. So we're all born anxious. And it's a particular emotion. And like all emotions, it actually evolved to be helpful to us, which is surprising because it feels so bad. Yeah. But it evolved to be helpful because it shows up when we're facing something uncertain about the future, which by definition, you know, the future is by definition uncertain, right? And, but, but we, we know, but we don't always feel that uncertainty, but especially in times when we're going through transitions or in uncertain times, like we're experiencing today, peri-pandemic. Um, I mean, we're, you know, you can be peri-menopause, peri-pandemic, you can be, <laughs> like, it's a lot. Or both. <laughs> or both. And, you know, um, so a, a lot of us, have experienced anxiety. And, and the really important thing is that it shows up when we're uncertain because it's there to help us actually visualize and think about that future because something bad could happen, right? When we feel anxious, but something good is still possible. And anxiety tells us that's the case. It makes us sit up and pay attention to tell us there's something you can do. It's an activating emotion. So it actually is making us into mental time travelers. We can run the what if simulation. So tomorrow I have a job interview, for example, perhaps. And I know that I could bomb it and I'm feeling anxious about that, but I also know that I could crush it and get the job of my dreams. So because of that information of negativity and positivity of worry and hope, we're actually prepared to focus, to persist, to innovate. The emotion of anxiety keeps us moving forward like a wave. Now it's a really hard wave to ride. 
because it's unpleasant. And our instinct and everything that we hear around us in the self-help world tells us, get rid of it, fix it. But the truth is, that's the worst thing you can do when it comes to anxiety, because that means that you're contracting and distorting yourself so you don't feel that emotion. And actually, the only way out is through. So when you allow yourself to feel it, that's when you can figure out, huh, this is a really tumultuous wave. It's really overwhelming sometimes. But I can learn to swim, and I can learn to surf, and I can learn to sail. And this is my opportunity to engage with this difficult emotion and know that it's pointing me towards a future that I care about and that I want, like I want to get that job that I care about. And so I'm going to work hard and persist and do everything I can. So that's a very long-winded definition, non-scientific definition of, of anxiety, but it is an emotion and it's there to serve us. And the problem is we reject it and have, you know, we just don't want to engage it anymore and learn how to live with it. You're right in the fact that it is an emotion that we put a negative connotation to. We don't want to have it. Let's get rid of it. That makes perfect sense. And I'm glad you define it because when my daughter was 16, she came to me and she said, I have to tell you something. And I was like, oh no, she's pregnant. Oh, well, what happened? <laughs> I'm freaked out. And she said, I have anxiety. And I said, well, what does that mean? Like, at the time, I had no clue. I, I, I said, I don't see you having, you know, out of breath, you know, that that stereotypical, you know, stressed out person. She's actually quite calm. She told me the other day she'd like to do some parachuting. Um, so I, I was lost. I was like, how in the world <laughs> does she have anxiety? And so she said, well, she spoke to some friends and they said, we don't feel like that. You should go talk to your mom. In, over the the years, I've learned actually what that could mean. And I guess there's a spectrum and there's so many different types. And I felt like such a failed mom. I was like, how could I not see this? You know, <laughs> like, wow, I was clueless. How did I not um, see? Yeah. And, and evidently there's anxiety that's very suppressed. And there's these feelings, like you said, you had, you have, and it's not necessarily just a, your character, but I guess there, there is people, there are people who are born maybe with more anxious but like you said, an, a feeling, and I, I'm glad you you define that. And and, right. and and my kids come to me and say they're anxious all the time. And, and, you know, I worry about my kids too. So, but, but really my first response that I try to have is, well, good, because I'm anxious too. We're all born anxious. Now, what do we do with it? Let's figure out how to use this as a superpower. So we have to normalize it. And, the, and, and just to then to just distinguish it, from an anxiety disorder. And it's interesting, your mind and most of our minds go to, oh, she says she has anxiety. So she means she's having a panic attack or she's out of breath or she's overwhelmed. But when we have an anxiety disorder, it's not that we have too much anxiety because you could have anxiety every day, experience it every day, which probably we do on some level, right? Because it's a spectrum from butterflies in your stomach to full-blown panic, right? So, but you could have it every day and you wouldn't be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder unless the ways that you cope with that anxiety are getting in the way. That means functional impairment. So if I'm socially anxious, I, I fear people's judgment of me or public embarrassment, then that, that's that's something I can cope with. But then if I stop going to work, if I don't do podcasts anymore, if I cut off from my friends, if I isolate myself at home, it's those, it's that avoidance of the experience of anxiety, that that contortion we do to not feel it. That's what actually qualifies us for an anxiety disorder diagnosis. And when you go to therapy, as we should when we're struggling, what is the frontline gold standard treatment? Engage those feelings, learn to feel them again, and work through them. So whether it's day-to-day -day anxieties like all of us experience an ebb and flow, or if it's a full-blown anxiety disorder, the solution remains the same. And all of our language about anxiety, right, that it's sort of despair and dysfunction, like, oh, I'm broken, like, oh, I have anxiety, something's wrong with me. If we can start to shift that, We'll start to avoid less. We'll start to build more anxiety skills. And maybe we won't go down that path to a to an anxiety disorder. And, and even if we do have an anxiety disorder, we can still have that mindset and benefit from therapies and support. And, you know, whether that's a therapist or whether that's a spiritual counselor or whether that's a really good friend that you love to have coffee with. Before anything else, if we can start to change that conversation, everything else will be better when it comes to anxiety. So it sounds like the coping mechanism is is really key. And I'm wondering how many people get this, especially women in menopause, 
get this sort of diagnosis of, um, I don't know, either, okay, you're stressed out, you have anxiety or your depression. My daughter, what the therapist did, she gave her some cognitive behavioral techniques, some uh, uh, ideas, but she also wanted to give her some medication. And I was like, oh, she's 16. Let her, you know, try for some other things before we actually hit that road. I believe that a lot of women in their 50s and or going through the perimenopause in their 40s are given medication when perhaps it could be solved by something else or maybe not. I think that it's it's such a fine line. Like it's how, where do we decide, okay, do we actually have depression? It's, it's, it's debilitating us or is it just hormones or something different? How often do you think medication is actually the solution? It's such an important question. And I, I just want to echo you that it really is an individual choice. It has to be individual on an individual basis. But here's what I do know about medication, especially anti-anxiety medications like the benzodiazepine. They're overprescribed, right? It's like, a, it's sort of like we take it like aspirin sometimes because we assume we have to just kill the pain of anxiety immediately. And um, it's very addictive and dangerous. So, and, and the other thing is when we take benzodiazepines for a long period of time, for a long period of time, it actually causes neuroadaptive changes. You know, our brain actually baseline anxiety rises over time. So when you try to get off benzos, you actually feel even more anxious than when you began sometimes. Because what medications treat are just symptoms. They don't treat anything about the cause of anxiety. Having said that, just to be really aware of some of the, the, the risks, what medications are really good for is, uh, and what they were designed to do and what research shows us is that they're meant to be used temporarily to bring us back to a baseline right? Of if we're, you know, because if our, you know, if we're um, so anxious all the time and so activated and so highly, you know, if we are, as you described this, you know, we're constantly feeling on the edge of panic. We can't make great, our best choices under those circumstances. We can't benefit from cognitive behavioral therapy. So in that case, taking medication for a short period of time brings us back to the baseline. And then we can, but then we need to try these other techniques. It's sort of like the, the, the medication is like giving a per it's, you know, the old, the old biblical adage, you can give a person a fish and they'll eat for a day, or you can teach them to fish and they'll eat for a lifetime. Benzos and anti-anxiety medications are giving someone a fish. CBT is teaching them to fish for a lifetime. Another metaphor that a young, uh, a young person I spoke to once who'd been taking medication on and off said, you know, I realized that what medication is really good at is helping me step into the boxing ring, so to speak. Like it lets me get to a place where I can step into the boxing ring, but then I have to put on my boxing gloves and I have to fight the fight. I have to do the work. So I think when we shift to thinking it about that way, then we can make some good choices for ourselves about if and when and how we use medication to get us to a place so we can put on our boxing gloves and do the work. Because being human is really messy work. And Mental health is not the absence of struggle. It's not the absence of negative feelings. It's actually the ability to feel those feelings and to be flexible when life throws us all these curveballs. And that's messy. That's not easy. And that just takes work. And we have to not be feel broken or judge. Our, you know, a lot of it is also self-acceptance. We're so ashamed when we struggle or when our kids struggle as a parent. You know, I felt that same thing. And I'm a psychologist. I'm like, oh, my gosh, my kids are struggling. Oh my gosh, I've doubly, doubly failed because this is what I'm supposed to be good at, you know? But we have to let go of that and just say, this is what being human about mental health is not some endpoint of perfection. So I think all of those things are important when we think about medication and the process of, of pursuing well being. This episode is sponsored by Oxford Healthspan, the creators of my favorite supplement, Primadine. I admit it, I am a total supplement junkie, but if I had to choose only one, it would be this one. And it's because primidine is spermidine, and this is shown to activate autophagy, which is super important. Now, this is a cellular cleanup and recycling process that declines as we age. So as we get older, our cells accumulate a lot of junk and waste, which isn't good for our cells, our health, nor our longevity. So we need to clean it up. And if you want the research on this, go to OxfordHealthSpan.com and you can see all of it, showing how spermidine supports our brain, our hormones, and our heart health. 
And another great side effect is stronger hair, skin, and nails, but also longer eyelashes. But, you know, the real important reason why I love Primadine is because I have never, ever received as much feedback on a product I recommended as I have with Primadine. Literally, every week, someone reaches out to me on Facebook or Instagram with an amazing testimonial. And most of the time, it's about improved sleep. And even some of you told me it's reversed a bit of your gray hair too. So I find that totally amazing. So I can honestly say with 100% certainty that Primadine is the best spermidine supplement you'll ever find. And you can try it with a 15% discount by using the code Zora, Z-O-R-A, on OxfordHealthSpan.com. Just be sure to get back to me with your results too. Now enjoy the show. So I'm wondering what is a short term and what is long term? I mean, really, it's meant to be used, uh, you know, a few months at a time. It's, it's. I mean, after three, four, five, six months. I mean, you're. Me- I'm not a. Me- I'm not a, a medical doctor with an MD. I'm a PhD, so I know about the. You know, I'm a neuroscientist as well. I know about the brain, but I really, really want people to speak to their physicians and understand. I mean, the guidelines are there. The recommended durations are there, and the medical professionals are aware of that. What happened is they want to relieve people's pain. But they're not psychologists. And it's a really important point that to actually, eventually you have to feel that pain emotionally, emotional pain to actually work through it. And I liken, and right now there's a benzodiazepine crisis, the third leading cause of of prescription overdose death after opioids, two different kinds of opioids are benzodiazepines because they're highly addictive. They're nervous system depressants, which means they can stop our heart, slow our breathing especially when combined with other nervous system depressants like alcohol. And we can take too much by mistake. So they're very serious drugs, but medical professionals, because they want to relieve people's physical pain, their emotional pain, they're giving them too freely. And, and, and this is something that has to, we, I think we're all more aware now. And there's lots of discussions and there's great you know, documentaries out there and articles. And we need to be um, really empowered uh, you know, consumers of medical you know, of medical healthcare, of healthcare and mental healthcare and physical healthcare. And we really have to know and ask these questions of our doctors when they go in. Such a good point. And I, it sounds like they're overprescribed, like say antibiotics were, and we don't. And they still are antibiotics as you know, <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a problem. Yeah. And we, our bodies just cannot uh, adapt on their own with a little bit of quote unquote stress, right? We need that to build that resilience and so it's okay. It sounds like, you know, anxiety is, a, is, is, a, is not a bad thing. We just need to have it in, in the appropriate doses and be able to cope. So, but, but when we're talking about menopause, I want to go back to the menopausal woman and anxiety because I've read reports anywhere between like 30 to 80% of women feeling anxious in this period of life. So it's, it's not unusual to hear a woman going through the perimenopause, uh, you know, they'll be prescribed antidepressants and all that. And maybe she needs it. Maybe she doesn't, like I mentioned, but I'm wondering how much do you think is anxiety due to the declining sex hormones, or is it because we're experiencing changes in our lives and our lifestyles, or maybe it's the lack of sleep that's contributing or something else? All of the above. And I know that, I mean, and I will, I disclosed to you before we, um, we got on um, live um, that I turned 50 this year and, and I was sort of saying, oh, I'm sort of perimenopausal. I'm not sure. And now I know for sure I'm perimenopausal. And so (laughs) I'll speak a little bit from experience as well in answering your question. All of the above, because this is a time of change. And when we're changing, when we're transitioning, whether it's us, whether we're a school-age kid going to school for the first time or going to college or changing, or our, you know, our sex hormones are changing and we're entering this new stage of our life as women, where not only is a biological change, but there's a lot of social change, how we're perceived, what we do, and how we're perceived for better or for worse, I think. Because I've never, you know, as a person who's, uh, you know, I think it's different depending on your field or what your life's like, but I'm a professional in a certain field and I feel like I'm at the top of my game. And part of that is being an older woman. And so, you know, they're all, but these, this is something too that's changing. When I hear those data that you just talked about, about, you know, 80% of women experience anxiety, experience depression, 
I have questions because is that that they're feeling anxious? And I would say, well, got, got you know, Darn Tootin, you feel anxious. <laughs> I don't know where the Darn Tootin came from, but there it is. <laughs> and Darn Tootin. Tootin. <laughs> you feel anxious. And I'm laughing a little because as I said, I, as I said, I'm going through it. I mean, oh my gosh, it's a lot to have all of these things happening. And again, the emotion of anxiety is about uncertainty. And that's literally what men- menopause is about. But this anxiety, if we think of it as a normal human emotion, and as we think about it as giving us two things, information and preparation. Now, I'm an emotion scientist. So and and, and every emotion scientist is Darwinian, which means we know that there's evolutionary you know, adaptiveness to emotions. So when I say information and preparation, let's take menopause. Of course, the information I'm getting right now is, oh my gosh, I don't know what my body's going to be like. I'm not sure if I'm going to sleep well. Is there something wrong? Is this a healthy menopausal? I mean, a million questions come to mind and anxiety is showing up to tell me, okay, this is important. You better start thinking, is this bad or is it okay? Is it going to be okay? And if it's maybe not okay, what can I do to get to the good? And anxiety is what's getting me maybe waking up at 4am and thinking, I'm really worried, you know, right now about, you know, about my ability to get through, you know, a night's sleep or now my ability to work because I can't sleep well and I'm up and I'm having hot flashes and I'm doing whatever's happening. And so when you're, the information is that you're concerned, but then you can say, okay, I got to listen to this. What do I do? Because once you listen to anxiety, you can prepare. Now, if you don't listen to it, you don't know what's wrong. You just feel yucky, but now you're, you're actually leaning into it and you're saying, okay, what can I leverage here about what I know, what I'm good at to solve this problem? And action is the best antidote to anxiety. Not, not obsessive action or compulsive action, not like on the worry treadmill. I just mean, I'm up at 4 a.m. Let me make a plan for tomorrow. Okay, I'm going to take part in that sleep study. I don't know that I was interested in about whether this is menopause or some other sleep problem, or I'm going to go and look up two wellness resources from people I know really know what they're talking about. And I'm going to try something that they suggest about my sleeping problem or I, you know, but, but you make a plan. And as soon as you make that plan using anxiety, not as something to reject, but as something you're curious about as information, your anxiety is going to go down because it's telling you you're on the right track. Oh, okay. I'm using this information for preparation. And then once you do, it's completely different scenario and it helps you. It actually empowers you not to be owned by that anxiety, but to own it and to leverage it for whatever you can. And then you can let go. And then you can say, okay, but I don't want to be anxious all the time. Now I also have to think about, okay, they tell me breathing is good. What's it? Okay. Let me breathe. I love, I actually, I know everyone's like, breathe. It'll be okay. But breathing (laughs) is good. You know, the four, seven, eight technique for us women, when we wake up and our heart's kind of pounding, you breathe in for four, hold for seven, exhale for eight. Or if, or as long as you're breathing in for half the time that you're exhaling. So you want to breathe in through your nose and exhale for twice as long slowly your heart rate will slow down. It's biologically impossible not to. It's activating your parasympathetic nervous system. So, you know, we can do these things, or maybe you know that you need to exercise. A lot of people, that puts them in the the, the best space they can be in. And exercise is an antidote for a lot of our emotional distress. You know, one of our, you know, a great behavioral and cognitive psychologist once said in a, in a, in a conference I attended, he said, you know, if we psychologists really want to help people, we get them to all exercise. <laughs> and then we'd see what was left over. And then we'd create boutique treatments and boutique, you know, science-based wellness wellness practices that would help people work through that. And then, you know, therapy, you know, on a as need basis. But so whatever it is, we know how to let go and come back to the present and nurture ourselves and rejuvenate ourselves. But it should be after we try to listen and leverage anxiety. And if we're curious and open about anxiety, we will find those opportunities. And then maybe realize, you know what? This is more medical. This is something where I really do need to go to the go to my physician and really ask for that support. And if they don't give me that support I need, anxiety is going to keep me persisting and I'll go to another doctor. Do you know what I mean? So this is how we dance with our anxiety. And this is how we're going to be able to make the most of it. And fringe benefit, it'll go down. We'll feel, we'll feel better. There's so much I want to comment. It's so great. Everything you said, I'm full agreement with. And glad you brought up the breath work. It does lower your heart rate. I swear by it myself. (laughs) I wake up at night for some reason. And you can literally feel the heart coming down. Interestingly, you mentioned about problem solving 
versus the coping mechanism to is these are two strategies. And it reminds me when I was doing my master's of gerontology, we had a whole section on stress and, and how that affects the, it was the mind body connection is what this class was all about, which was brilliant. And I, we were talking exactly like you said, the best approach was to solve the problem, whatever it is. So it's your you know, neighbors uh, purting all night, and then you can knock on their door if you feel like it and tell them to stop. Or you can cope and say, you know what, it's just one night tomorrow. I'll, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully they won't party tomorrow. So I agree with you. I mean, that's exactly what we learned. And I think it's wonderful. Hey, I'm butting in for a quick second. If you enjoy the content brought to you in this podcast, consider supporting Hack My Age by becoming a patron on patreon.com. This is where you can drop a tip or become a member for the price of a coffee. Members get special material, free coaching, and private Zoom calls. Join us by going to patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash hack my age. Thanks for your support. Now let's get back to the podcast. What is the difference between stress and anxiety? So stress is not an emotion. It's a calculation, right? It's it's a it's a it's a sort of a ratio between the demands that the environment is throwing at us and our ability, especially our perceived ability to meet those demands. And if demands outweigh our capacity, that's when stress starts to feel you know, burdensome, toxic, you know, it's, you know, but there is such a thing as good stress, right? And people talk about this all the time. And that's when that balance is a little better. So when we're, and, you know, stress is not just, it sort of encompasses all the emotions, because if we're planning for a wedding, we're going to feel stress, but the emotions we're going to feel will be a combination of anxiety and joy, and maybe frustration, and maybe, you know, so the stress is sort of this umbrella, this sort of equation we run when we engage in the world and think about, you know, what, what can I handle it? Can I do this? And what are, and how do I refine my ability to handle whatever life, the curveballs that life throws my way. And under that umbrella are all the emotions that we can feel and anxiety being a really big emotion that shows up again, when we're uncertain. Now, anxiety isn't the same as fear because fear has nothing to do with uncertainty. Fear is if a snake were crawling, you know, a, you know, a viper all of a sudden came into my apartment in Manhattan, but it was like crawling <laughs> across the floor towards me. And I was in, it was certain and present danger, no doubt, no uncertainty. The information is I'm in danger. And that information prepares us because it's an evolutionary advantage to fight, take flight or, or freeze. So I would probably take flight, right? If there's a, really a snake or, or, you know, maybe I'd freeze and climb up. I don't know. Who knows what I do? But that's why anxiety isn't stress. It isn't fear. It's this, that's why it's this special thing that we can have a special relationship with. And I'm not thinking, I'm not saying to people love anxiety. I mean, it sucks. It's terrible. It feels terrible. And I'm not even saying like it, but I do think we have to honor it. And I think we have to reclaim it. And I think we have to, and because it's a way of honoring ourselves and in, in all of our complexity. And when we reclaim it, kind of like, you know, like something we've forgotten, like, cause we've rejected it now. So I think of it sort of like, it's this gift that's been hiding at the top of our closet and we find it, or we find like a $10 bill in our pocket. I don't know, or a hundred dollar bill. That's a better analogy. And just, we have to engage it and know that like any vulnerability, it's also a strength. And when we see both the, our strength and vulnerability and anxiety, that's when we're most truly ourselves. And that's when we're really at our most powerful. I love how you said that. It makes us feel so much better about this emotion and rather than pushing it away, but to embrace it and consider it a challenge. And it reminds me a little bit of, I'm not sure if you saw this TED talk with Kelly McGonigal. McGonigal. I know it very well. Yeah. Yeah, Make stress your friend. And it was all about your perception of stress and, and, and use it as a, as a challenge. So it's, it's, there's a lot of, we, we, you explain the difference between the two words, but there's a lot of crossover and we would use the same word. Like I would use just menopause for the peri and the post-menopause <laughs> difference, right? Absolutely. And it's funny. I think friend is a great analogy. I think ally is maybe even a better one because allies, they don't just do what you want. They can be real stinkers. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so you have to you have to negotiate, but that's what life is about. My friend Reshma Sojani uh, wrote a book called Pay Up, which is about women in the workforce and how. And she has this great line. She says, "Where it's you know, you know, women have been told that we can have it all, but really that's just code for doing it all." 
And so we have this incredible talk about stress, right? In terms of, well, we have to be like, kill it in the boardroom. We have to be a perfect parent. If we have a, you know, if we have a partner, we have to be an awesome, sensitive, supportive partner. And we have to, you know, depending on your, like your, your, you know, your personality, maybe you want to keep a spotless house or maybe you want to be, you know, and so we struggle under this expectation from ourselves, from society of perfection. And I read, and, and I, and I think that the, there's a much better alternative, um, which is that we don't have to be perfect. You know, we don't have to like flagellate ourselves, self-flagellate when we're anxious. We have to, we have to go for excellent right? We have to go for, and, and part of being excellent, which is just being our best, is that we have to make mistakes along the way. We have to fail. We have to actually sometimes be just good enough, but that's the only way to get to excellent because perfectionism is actually a recipe for doing less well, being less creative, less productive, more, you know, problematically anxious and depressed and all, all of that. So I really, as I think about being a woman in this world and also with the added maybe process of menopause, like that's, I really think that, and we have to lean into that difficult stuff, whether we call it anxiety or stress or sa- whatever it is, like we have to lean in. There's no, and, I, and I'm not talking about, you know, lean in because I have some real issues with that. That's another conversation because <laughs> that's like, I'm not going to play by the boys rules. We need to change the rules, honestly, like is my viewpoint, but, but I think emotionally engage like we, you know, and, um, and I just think that that's, it helps us forgive ourselves, which gives us more strength. You spot on. You mentioned one thing I I, I want to reiterate. I think it's important too is that you're that anxiety is the is the it's the unknown that we're worried about, right? It's that uncertainty, and that's exactly what menopause is is where that's where we're at and we're hope we're opening these conversations you're opening it about anxiety uh women plenty of women out there who are like me podcasting or writing articles or bringing out information because to me it seems menopause is a little bit like dr carrie jones calls it reverse puberty and and remember i mean you didn't know what was going to happen all you knew was going to blood everywhere and you're just not really sure and you were anxious (laughs) and and here we are like 13 year olds again going, what's going to happen? Oh my gosh. I love Asking your that. friends. Yeah. Does it hurt? <laughs> and and, so it, and it's just, yeah. So now we're, we're at the beginning of changing the narrative of menopause and now anxiety. And, and I'm so glad you're, you're doing that. Now, another thing that you brought up, you said something about toxicity and it reminded me about the word toxic positivity, which I just learned. <laughs> do you do you know what that is, and does it play a role in anxiety? I, I think that what toxic positivity is really signifying is this idea that I sort of alluded to before, which is that we think that unless we're always happy, always fully optimized, you know, you know that that something's wrong with us, right? So that any that's why we think when we experience anxiety oh my gosh, it's going to start spiraling because it means something's broken inside me. And it's just, number one, it's so radically false. Number two, it makes everything worse because as soon as you think you're broken, your beliefs start to become reality. And it's an opportunity cost because if you're broken or if you're failing at mental health, (laughs) because it's like somehow you have to be happy all the time. And it's very American too, you know, it's very like, (laughs) so I think Europeans have an easier time of it perhaps. But as soon as you feel like, unless I'm happy all the time, uh, there's like, uh, there's something really spiraling downwards. It just is an opportunity cost in actually doing helpful things when it comes to anxiety. It's, it keeps you from seeing, again, it's contracting you. So, you know, when you work with kids um, and, and talk about anxiety, a great therapeutic approach, if you know what a Hoberman sphere is, it's that sphere that kind of, it, it, it's like very geometric and then you open it up and it's still the sphere and it closes down. Mm, yes. A lot of parents know this because yes. it's like sort of popular, right? Had one. <laughs> yeah. And so anxiety is sort of like, or this, this, this toxic positivity in a way, as soon as you feel that negative emotion, it's like, oh my gosh, it's, it blocks you from seeing that. Oh, wait a second. You know, you have to kind of open up the sphere <laughs> so you yes. can see through again and say, you know what? I'm falling down now but I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to get up tomorrow and that's okay. And that's actually okay. And I actually am really struggling, but this is the point where if I pivot or if I, if I actually push through this one roadblock, 
my my horizon is going to be completely different. So this all of a sudden the possibilities have changed because I haven't contracted, I've expanded. So and and I've become flexible instead of rigid. If there's one thing that keeps us on a, a path towards mental health problems, it's rigidity. It's not finding ways to sometimes bob and weave, to sometimes you know, have a fast fall and jump up again <laughs> and tr- and stumble along for a few miles, you know? So it's that flexibility and how we find that in our lives. And I just think menopause is exactly that time because of the reverse, you know, the reverse puberty of it all, you know, our identity. I mean, it's not just biological, it's our identity as women, you know? And that's another good reason. It's like reverse puberty, right? I, I mean, I mean, it's just, what are our possibilities? So if we engage in this hard, messy work. I think like I'm at, I'm 50 and I'm actually starting to do all these new things in my career and in my life. And I just feel like in a way, you know, menopause freed me up to do that, you know, and we're at our best, you know, we are, we know how to do shit. Excuse me. I'm so sorry. That's not <laughs> yes. a lot on your <laughs> but, oh, we use that all the time. No worries. Know how to do, you know, it's like, we're, it's like, yeah. Like back in, you know, back maybe, you know, just even like a thousand years ago, I don't know, like prehistorically when it was a matriarchy, if we survived this long, we were freaking running the show as matriarchs (laughs) for for good reason. And I just want, I just feel like in every, in every, it's like anxiety is, we think it's a wall, but it's a, it's a path, you know, it's, it's pushing us forward because it's, it's really an opportunity. And again, it stinks. It sucks. Don't like it. Don't love it. But God, we can we can make it our superpower if we if we just build those skills little by little. And it's part of being human. And we have to just, I like how you say lean into it. And that's why I've kind of mentioned toxic positivity because I'm one of those diehard positive people. <laughs> and that's just the way I am. And so, but I've been learning about uh, the negative emotions and they will build up and bite you in the ass if you don't look at it. And I- I had this argument because I was, I was one of these people. I'm like, I hate complainers. I don't like people who just, you know, complain all the time. And, and those are negative emotions. And of course I have trauma and all that. I just, why even go there? But I was told you need to not, I don't want to, you don't need to sit there and, and wallow in your grief or sadness or anger or whatever you're feeling. It's just acknowledging it, knowing it's there and honoring it. And then you move on. And I thought that was really interesting. Like it's part of being human. It's okay to feel those feelings because for me, it was like, it's not okay. I don't want to be there. Like oh, <laughs> just get out of there. Perfect. It's such great advice. And the thing about it, that's so interesting to me as I, as I've thought about this is, you know, I've been a mental health professional for 20 years and we do tell people get rid of it. As soon as you feel it, you better deal with it. Right. But here's what happens when you start cutting off those parts of yourself, the negative parts you start to cut off the positive parts, the parts that can find joy, that can find, you know, excitement and curiosity. So once you start, you know, amputating certain emotions, you amputate the others. And here's the other thing. We don't fear that when we feel really happy, that it's going to spiral out of control. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, we, but, we, but we feel, I was, yeah, but we right. feel, and I, actually I was talking to Dr. Eliza Pressman on her podcast about this, and I want to give her the credit for this, this thought, because um, I love this thought. Like, So why do we think that <laughs> our negative emotions will automatically spiral? That's why we can't allow ourselves to feel them. And sometimes trauma is part of that. And sometimes it's that that's how we talk about it. And, and I think that when we remember that all of these, not, you know, not just anxiety, this is just a poster child for our negative emotions, right? All of the negative emotions we treat this way, that we feel like, oh my gosh, if we start sinking down, we're never going to stop. And it's it's not true. As you say, that's how you honor it. And then you move on. It's the only way. Yeah. I love that. We don't get worried about, we do not go be too happy because it might just get oh, out better, of control. Oh, oh. <laughs> so like, tamp, down, tamp down on that. Pump, pump the brakes on that. Of course, you have to be my age to know what pump the brakes even means. <laughs> yeah. yeah don't, don't get too happy. Yeah. Dangerous. Oh boy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, okay. Well, this, this to me, I, what I'm hearing a, a lot is, is to, is, is our, is our perception of this anxiety as well and how to, to cope with it. But I think it's harder. It, I, it's easier said than done in the sense that I can imagine for someone who is really 
you know, feeling desperate and 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 having that, it's it's so easy to go negative with that. The negative mind just sort of kicks in and thinks of the worst that can happen, right? There are people like that who that's all they think is a, is a plan B just in case plan A falls apart and they can, you know, just have a backup plan. Their whole lives are about the worst that can happen. So how how hard is it to turn things around and start to think things like everything you've been telling us about, like to start thinking that way? It's hard. I don't want to say it's easy. At the same time, it is a a habit of thinking and habits can be broken and new habits built. And that's, you know, and I really do encourage everyone, whether they think, you know, and, and sometimes it's stigma. We don't want to think we have an anxiety disorder. Don't worry about that. We can always go to a therapist. We can always go to someone who can give us new ideas. Think about it like a skill building. Think about it like fitness. You know, I've talked with people before about letting go of this term mental health and turning it to mental fitness, not because mental health is bad, but when we think mental health, we think mental illness automatically. We actually don't think about a positive state of health. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when we say fitness, we think about a positive state, right? Of, yeah. of well-being. So let's think mental fitness. It is hard if we have lifelong habits, yes, but it's not impossible. And, and we can build up these skills consciously through practices, you know, even thinking like, even with a negative, like all of the, that is a habit of protecting yourself, of trying to control a really scary a world that's really scary a lot of the time. And all of those contortions, again, it's a contortion, right? I love a therapeutic approach that, that's called acceptance and commitment therapy. It's so beautiful. It's all about this. In some ways, my book is sort of read that and then do acceptance and commitment therapy. Because because really the the acceptance about it is exactly what I'm saying is about we have to accept these feelings and actually accept suffering before we can alleviate suffering and then commit to purposeful action. And for me, when we leverage anxiety, it's about leveraging anxiety for the things we care about, about our purpose, about what matters to us. So if we have this habit of thinking about negative things, it's actually in there somewhere is our purpose about our, like, why do we get up in the morning? Because you're only anxious when you care. And when we start hitching anxiety to what matters us to us in the world, and when we take time for social connection, not just receiving, but giving to others, anxiety will start to shift. These habits will start to serve us. We can get flexible. Again, flexibility, you know, try, you know, we can gain that. So I really encourage people, I want to say, it is hard. There's nothing in what I'm saying that's that makes it simple. And sometimes I, you know, I, a lot, in a lot of conversations like this, I laugh and I think about it afterwards. I'm like, it's just because we're all in this. Like I'm in this. I, str- you know, I go through these thoughts and these experiences on and off all the time. And we have to, when we have humor about it and we accept it as part of like, oh my gosh, I'm such a mess sometimes. It's another way of accepting and committing, right? So, so it's, it's really this mindset and, you know, it's a new mindset because the mindsets we have is that it's a disease, the disease mindset, or that it's a character flaw. It's a weakness. And all of that sets us up to avoid and self punish and actually, you know, and stay in these negativity cycles. So I would say to someone who's, who's struggled with this for a long time, there is help. You can change it. Consider acceptance and commitment therapy, consider cognitive behavioral therapy, these are great tools. And what you'll do is you'll be more yourself. You won't be less of yourself. You know, that's that's one thing that I that I would I would definitely say. You just got some great tips. Cause one of my questions was a woman going through menopause transition and she's having a bit of anxiety. How do we, how do, you know, what can we do to cope? You've given some great tips in terms of using, well, the acceptance commitment behavior, the cognitive behavior therapy, the, the problem solving when you wake up in the middle of the night, breath work, there's, there's a lot of great stuff. And, and one thing I found on your website and is, is that you were uh, doing this gamifying uh, an app that was gamifying, I don't know, to manage the anxiety. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so this is my company, Arcade Therapeutics. It, um, I actually, in a way, I started this company 15 years ago, but we just founded it a handful of years ago with my co-founder, Rajameen, because it's science first. So I'm a scientist um, as well as a clinical psychologist. And I about uh, 10 or 15 years ago, I started doing research on digital um, therapies. So, so actually therapies that are cognitive, that help change our habits of thinking that are meant to be on screens that are actually, you know, what we would call digital native. Right. Yeah. And, 
my, I think what my insight was at the time, as I started doing research and really testing whether these helped alleviate anxiety was that we can't, you know, we have to reduce stigma too, and we have to get them into people's hands. So we create mobile games uh, where we embed this clinically validated treatment approach, where the goal is to actually change our unconscious habits when we're anxious. And those unconscious habits um, can be described, uh, one way of describing them is uh, the threat bias. So when we're anxious, it's kind of as we've been talking about, we get stuck in these negativity loops, right? So unconsciously, when we look at the world, we have this filter uh, and we filter in the negative and we sort of can't even see the positive sometimes. And it gets it gets to become a rigid habit. So if I'm giving a public speech, say there are 100 people in front of me with a threat bias, I, I like a spotlight. I notice that there's just this one guy falling asleep in the back row. Right? <laughs> and I and it's like it's like the filters, it filters it right in and it's a spotlight of my attention. And I can't notice on some level that 99 people are smiling and engaged and fully with me. And what happens when we have this unconscious habit of attention, kind of like our conscious habits of negativity and worry, is it drives the vicious cycle of anxiety, right? It puts our fight flight system on a hair trigger and it just revs us up. And so it makes anxiety worse and it keeps us from coping flexibly. And so what are um, our games that we've created and our first one targets social anxiety um, and social anxiety disorder um, is it helps to kind of change that spotlight, get the spotlight off <laughs> so we can flexibly scan the, the audience and start to notice all the kinds of information. So it's not that we never notice the negative, but now we're flexibly able to notice the positive and the negative. But it's in this brief game that keeps you on um, the screen just 10 minutes a day, a few days a week. Oh, that's not and, a lot. And, it, and you do it for a month. And what our randomized clinical trials have shown, and we have placebo-controlled randomized clinical trials, is that when you use this game, it's doing the work for you because it's a subconscious habit. You're just learning to pay attention differently. That when you do it for a month, clinical levels of clinical anxiety severity go down. Um, by a whole, you know, if you're clinically uh, socially anxious or generally anxious, it goes down a whole severity level. We found that there's reductions in anxiety for 90% of people that we've tested this with, which is a pretty big number, honestly. Very um, big. <laughs> and it's really engaging and brief and it's not sticking you on screens because of course screens can get us, you know, even more anxious sometimes. And it's a fun, casual game. So we don't feel like, you know, it's some white coat telling us, you know, a doctor in a white coat yeah. telling us, here, take your medicine. It's really empowering people to build new skills that are hard to get at with other techniques because a lot of them are unconscious. So where do we get the app? How do we play around with it? Well, right now, so it's on the app store and we just um, are actually um, starting to offer this through doctor's offices, through some partnerships um, with women's health organizations. So it is on the app store, you know, stay tuned and sign up because we're going to be um, giving, you know, people want to sign up. Um, they get a code and they just download it right from the app or uh, Google Play Store, the Apple Store, or the Google Play Store. Um, it's called Star Starter. Star and Starter. It's, okay. There's sort of a light space theme because, you know, we're a bit of sci-fi nerds, but it's not just for space fans. <laughs> it's just kind of <laughs> fun and engaging. Um, and again, we're really what we're doing at Arcade. And it's it's just really the same mission as what I've been talking to you about this whole conversation is we're trying to change how mental health is thought of and how we pursue it. And it's all about destigmatization. It's about, it's about you know, our, our mental health system is frankly broken. And not only is it accessing treatment, so we're trying to give much more access to people, you know, that, you know, when you do seek help, often you have to wait months and months to see a therapist. Maybe medications are right or not right for you. And this is something you can do immediately to alleviate anxiety. And we're not giving you snake oil, it's clinical evidence. Um, and so we're really trying to fill that healthcare gap while empowering people to feel not broken, not, you know, like I, there's nothing I can do, but rather to build new skills and know that mental health is a process, not an end point. So it's really, it's sort of, it's a different way of thinking about and, and pursuing and building mental health. And so it's a real, it's something I'm really passionate about. Sounds exciting and easy. <laughs> yes, it's it doing is, the work for us. Yeah. And then yeah. you have to do the work in life, <laughs> but it helps. It helps. It gets you into the boxing ring, so to speak. It's better than medication, I think. <laughs> well, I don't want to, you know, just because I don't want to, <laughs> you know, compare. It's a, it's different. It's different. And it's not going to be the solution for every 100, you know, 100% yeah. of people. And, you know, and I just want to say, be empowered to to explore whether medication is part of your solution. I beg people not to make it the only solution. 
because as the only solution that I can say hundred percent, it's not the right choice as the only solution. But ha- if it needs to be part of your solution with cognitive behavioral therapy, with digital therapeutics, like star starter with science-based wellness practices, with just going to a spiritual advisor, with just exercising regularly, with talking to a best friend on a weekly basis, whatever it is, you know, these are all, these are things that we can curate and, and build all these tools. Exercise and play the game at the same time is what I'm thinking. I like <laughs> that. Yeah, I personally the like that. And play, <laughs> play the game. And then see where you are. <laughs> yeah, so exciting. So Star Starter, when does that come out again? You said it. Well, it's on, the, it's, it's, a, it's on the App Store now. And we're just, when you when you download it, you could go to a sign up page and we can get your information and let people know when they can sign up for it. Oh, I'm going to try that. So you also, it's, I think it's been a year now that you wrote this book, Future Tense, yep. right? Why yep. Anxiety is Good right for Right about our one-year anniversary, yeah. Yeah. So this is, I normally read all the books of everybody who, who comes on the show, but I didn't get a chance to to get this one, but I will read it. I'm, I'm, I think what you said is absolutely brilliant and changing the narrative of this word called anxiety <laughs> and how to approach it. Uh, the book, uh, we can find it on your website, I think, right? Yep, absolutely. Or anywhere you buy books, it's called Future Tense, Why Anxiety is Good for You, Even Though It Feels Bad. That title might make more sense to people now that they've heard me talk for a little while. Yeah, um, It's a little controversial, So, but you can get that. On, and also you can see links on my website, which is drtracyphd.com. Great. I'll have links to that in the show notes, as well as you got uh, Instagram, Dr.TracyPhD. You're on Twitter, Tracy A. Dennis, and LinkedIn, Tracy Dennis Tiwari. And I'll have links for that for, for everyone to go and check you out and more what you're doing. It's so exciting. I am so glad you came on. Before I let you go, do you have any last words for a woman going through menopause? Uh, I do. And I, I'll just, I'm just kind of thinking about what do I tell myself when I get up every morning? morning. (laughs) And that that is that that change is opportunity. And sometimes it sucks. But uh, but we got this. Great. Oh, thank (laughs) you. We got this and we're in it together. So with your help, even better. Thank you so much, Tracy. I really appreciate it. And I, I hope to have you on again when you've got a new book or a new app or whatever it is that that's going on, maybe your research. Uh, We'd love to have you on again. Thank you, Zora. What a pleasure. Great to see you. Hey, did you enjoy the podcast? Don't forget to subscribe to be notified of all the new episodes and leave a review to help build the tribe. It's a small act of kindness that brings me big benefits and helps others find this amazing content. The best thing you can do is share. Sharing is caring. Statements made on this podcast have not been evaluated by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Anything we say or products we mention are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information provided by this podcast is not a substitute for personal medical advice and not intended to replace a one-on-one relationship with a qualified healthcare professional. It is intended as a sharing of knowledge and information from the personal research and experience of me and my guests.